Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The biggest banks, the ones that survived are the ones that survived. They like to think maybe it's because they're smarter. They actually survived because of their connections. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hello, my friends, even my enemies. You're here listening. That's all I care about. You're back here once again at the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode 112. Now, before we get into the show today, I would be remiss to not tell you about this amazing concept of health sharing and the package that our sponsors from Health Excellence Select have put together. If you have been frustrated with your health insurance, as I once was myself, Head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. My guest today is a renowned author, journalist, and financial expert. She has worked with major banking companies such as Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, and Lehman Brothers, and she has written several books on the inner workings of the banking system. Her latest is All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power. This book examines the close relationship between the banking industry and the executive branch throughout U.S. history. I am pleased to welcome in Nomi Prinz. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, Nomi, why don't you start off just telling us a bit about yourself for those who may not be familiar with your work. How did you first become involved with the financial industry and what eventually spurred you to leave that industry and essentially become a whistleblower, exposing a lot of the corruption and cronyism within the banking industry? Um, well, I started in the late 80s, actually, at Chase. I just wanted a job more than anything else. I, I graduated with a math degree a little bit uh, from a state university, wanted to move to Manhattan, and uh, I didn't even have a checking account, but uh, Chase was, was hiring in its uh, analytics department, so I wound up there, and uh, and sort of things, uh, one thing happened after another. I, I went to Lehman Brothers from there, and then to Bear Stearns in London, where I grew their analytics. Well, I started their analytics department, which worked on all sorts of securities, um, small, medium, large, with major institutions around the world. And then I came back to Wall Street to work for Goldman Sachs right about the time when the Enron fraud was coming, um, as well as WorldCom, and those corporate implosions were happening. And I think by that point, having had internal rumblings myself about wanting to leave the industry not being quite right for me on a moral basis, I decided to take off and write about it. So some of the first things I wrote about after I quit Goldman came out in a book, Other People's Money, which I wrote that came out in 2004, about the relationship between banks and what they were doing with these corporations with companies like Enron and WorldCom and how sort of one helped the other and what this meant for those industries and also the greater economy in terms of the types of financial frauds that were perpetrated and how people um, were ultimately affected, whether in layoffs or in just losing life savings or portions of their savings and so forth. And then I just really stayed in that realm of journalism and writing to continue to explore and explain what has been going on since. Um, certainly the financial crisis of 2008 was something 
that uh, made it all more apparent to more people in the world in terms of the impact of what these institutions do relative to their own pocketbooks. And we continue to live in that aftermath. Let's start there with the 2008 crisis, because that's something that is at the foremost of many people's minds. In some ways, I think many people are are still being affected by it. I don't think that the economy has really recovered in the way that it's often claimed it has. And to me, it still seems like I'm hearing a lot of the same people still not able to find jobs, just like they were saying in 2008. So what's your perspective on that banking crisis? From an insider's perspective, who is to blame here? Because this is a libertarian podcast, so as you can imagine, a lot of the guests I have on the show will point the blame at the Federal Reserve and the role of other federal agencies, whereas a lot of uh, progressives, I'll find that they'll focus more on the role of the banks themselves as sort of greedy and predatory. And I'm sure there is a lot of truth on both sides of that. So what is your perspective? Who are the real villains in the case of the 2008 crisis? I think that they're both. I mean, the, the Federal Reserve into the financial crisis had reduced rates to such a level. I mean, they're, they're lower now. But in the years before the crisis, after the Enron and WorldCom scandals, we had a recession, the Fed started lowering rates under Alan Greenspan, that caused a bubble, that also caused these larger institutions, whether they were mortgage institutions or investment banks, and some of the bigger banks that created these, these what we know now as toxic assets or securities from these mortgages, um, were incentivized to do that because rates were so low, they had to find ways to make more money. And the ways they found were um, in not just subprime lending, but taking those subprime assets and kind of rejiggering them into more lucrative, more complex securities that they then sold and distributed throughout the world. So on the one hand, the banks were actually doing that mechanically, but they were able and, and incentivized to do that by the policies of the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve isn't actually earning money on its own. What it's doing is it's setting the value to banks of money, right, by printing money and by setting where the rates of that money is available to um, the, the larger financial institutions. So if a company like J.P. Morgan Chase is getting money at 2% or whatever it is in the earlier part of the 2000s, they're able to make much more on that money as they turn it around, not just in lending, but in also creating uh, security upon security that each one along the way can take a little bit extra return or fees out of the market, all starting from a very low base. So that low base is set by the Federal Reserve, which has no actual accountability to any of the individuals involved in these transactions. They're supposed to be the regulator of the banks, but rather than regulating the banks in these practices, they just provided the cheap money in order to do them. And the result of all of that was not just the subprime crisis or the financial crisis of 2008 that started with subprime loans um, and the securities that banks built upon them. But it, it's manifested in what we now know to be a myriad of frauds that banks then created and have been fined, not a lot relative to their profits, but fined by regulators and by the Department of Justice across almost any practice that they were engaged in. So from foreign exchange rigging to LIBOR rigging to gold rigging to credit default swap rigging, which was related to the subprime market, they continue to be found um, having been involved in these manipulations after the fact. So it's really a combination of not just their incentive structure in terms of profits and bonuses at these institutions, but their availability to do what they do because of the liquidity that's provided by our central bank, by the Fed, and and now by global central banks to their own private institutions. Was the fact that these banks pretty much had a good idea that they would likely be bailed out in the event that these these investments didn't work out 
play a factor in this because it does seem that no matter who the president is, and this is a good kind of area we can examine this because this crisis sort of came in at the juxtaposition of, of two different administrations, the Bush administration going out and the Obama administration going in. So, I mean, is there any difference between how these two sides relate to the banks or or the guarantee? I mean, did these banks basically just know that no matter who's in office, it's a, there's a good chance that they're going to get bailed out of anything they might find themselves in? Uh, yeah, they know that whoever is in office will, regardless of whether a Democrat or Republican, or regardless of what they've said along the campaign trail, um, because the reality is these these banks, you're talking about J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, the leaders of these banks and the legacies of these banks go beyond who's in office at that particular moment. Um, so the relationships, for example, under Bush of having Hank Paulson, who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs, be his Treasury Secretary, um, that relationship, the idea of Goldman Sachs and the presidency, can be traced back to the days of, of FDR, when Sidney Weinberg, who was a young banker back then running Goldman Sachs, who had almost just imploded, um, was was helped by, by the Federal Reserve at the time, and he found a way to endear himself to FDR, and, and that relationship between the presidency and Goldman Goldman Sachs was spawned then, and then, of course, different individuals across the years and with different presidents um, continue to have those tight ties. You can trace the same kind of thing with President Obama, um, well, with, with, with Goldman Sachs, but also um, through the Clinton administration, back to the FDR administration, through the Eisenhower administration. So a lot of these relationships and close ties and sort of ideological parallels um, have been around a long time. The faces change, but the the idea of which party is in office or which specific individual is running a bank and then may or may not come in and out of some Washington appointed position, um, that idea, that, that revolving idea has stayed the same. Let's take a look back a little bit because this is what you examine in your book, All the President's Bankers. When did this relationship begin between the banks and the executive branch? How far back does this stuff go? Well, from the standpoint of, of banks in general helping to fund um, and therefore to extract fevers from, from the government, that, that's gone on back um, quite some time. I only start in the 1900s in the book, but if you look, for example, even with President Lincoln and trying to finance some of the Civil War, he was very closely associated with bankers coming out of Philadelphia. They later, um, so, so the idea when they came out of Wall Street, um, when it became J.P. Morgan's game, really, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was when the, the relationships of, of bankers and industrialists, which had existed before that to the presidency, morphed over to this tighter, um, stronger, more influential relationship between bankers and presidents. Um, and J.P. Morgan, who was, he still is probably one of the most powerful financiers this country has ever had, um, was very closely aligned with Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s and also very closely aligned with Woodrow Wilson, who became the president um, a term after Teddy Roosevelt with Taft in between because Teddy Roosevelt had, had had his party financed to a large extent by J.P. Morgan. They had close associations. The families, the Roosevelts and Morgans, had close associations. And so when there was a panic... In Wall Street in 1907, it was to J.P. Morgan that Teddy Roosevelt turned. So even though he's like um, shown historically in, in, in many cases as this major trust buster and anti-monopolies and so forth, he, he never trust busted these major banks. And that was one of the reasons they ultimately became so powerful, because they were actually provided by the Treasury Department during the panic money through J.P. Morgan to use to decide which companies who were 
undergoing, you know, because of their own fraud or other reasons, problems during the panic. And it was J.P. Morgan that decided with Teddy Roosevelt's blessing and the Treasury Department's money what to do. So that was a relationship which was both personal and unappointed, but but, but a way of, of Washington really enabling Wall Street to have that kind of power in an economic crisis. We saw that more recently in a sort of different version with Jamie Dimon having a lot of power in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. When Obama came into office, he still considered Jamie Dimon his favorite banker. You know, he defended him. Uh, he has money with J.P. Morgan Asset Management, his own personal money. So um, a lot of these things have their roots back to the turn of the 1900s. But they, then they've continued and built upon themselves. And you know, I talk about it much more in per. Um, presidency and decade and banker in the book, but it kind of had its roots there with that personal and political relationship. I'm curious about your perspective regarding the events leading to the creation of the Federal Reserve, which you do touch on in your book. I spoke with G. Edward Griffin a little over a year ago on this very show, and he, of course, wrote a magnum opus really detailing the sort of inner workings of how that came together, how that meeting on Jekyll Island that created the Federal Reserve happened. So what's your perspective on that? What was the motivation for the bankers to create the Federal Reserve, and, and how has it sort of helped the relationship, the crony relationship between bankers and the executive branch? Yeah, first of all, I, 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 that book was kind of a Bible for that part of, of, of my book. I spent a lot of time as well at Jekyll Island. Now it's a, it's a hotel resort for, for regular people. Um, but at the time, <laughs> the, the Jekyll Island Club was only accessible, and this is, this is an important thing to note in terms of the, the evolution of the Federal Reserve, it was only accessible by its members um, and by boat, and it was very heavily guarded. And there was only the seasonal travels of men like J.P. Morgan to the Jekyll Island Club where they would come over Christmas, they would come with their wives and so forth. And um, it was a place where they did business. It was a place where, you know, quote, the business of America was, was discussed and a lot of decisions were made at the hands of the elite group of people that had established it. And the way that relates into the establishment of the Federal Reserve and what I was talking about before was in the wake of the panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan, in particular, on the on the private side, and a man named Nelson Aldrich, who was a senator from Rhode Island, but whose son, Winthrop Aldrich, ultimately became the head of Chase and married into the Rockefeller family, and there was all these associations between the Morgans and the Rockefellers, but um, between that political component, Nelson Aldrich in Washington and J.P. Morgan in Wall Street, that's when a combination of things occurred, which was that Congress provided this green light to Nelson Aldrich to study, quote unquote, the central banks in Europe to determine what kind of a central bank we would have. And the reason it was determined that it was necessary at that time versus other times when it had just been discussed and kind of deleted or, or just pushed aside was because J.P. Morgan was concerned in the wake of this panic that what happens next time? I mean, he did receive $25 million, which was a lot at the time from the Treasury Department under Roosevelt to fix things, but he wasn't going to rely on the Treasury Department. A decade before that, he was the one giving money to the Treasury Department in a prior panic. You know, that was not going to work for him. Um, so the idea of having this external entity um, that he also uh, was what could influence, the bankers could influence, was something that he felt would help them. And so the people, not just J.P. Morgan, he was not involved in the meetings at, at Jekyll Island, um, but he was the member that provided the access 
to Nelson Aldrich and Frank Vanderlip, who was one of the senior members of National City Bank at the time, which we now know as Citigroup, and Paul War- Warburg and, and others to get together to discuss after the trips to Europe and after there had been tons of reports sent into Congress um, how the Federal Reserve would look. Um, and that meeting took place in Jekyll Island in, around Thanksgiving in 1910. The central bank did not get passed in terms of an act under Taft, who was president at the time, and who was very supportive of the structure that came out of that meeting. I mean, it ultimately got passed under Woodrow Wilson in the end of 1913. But it really, the, the bankers and, and Nelson Aldrich were, were very much coordinated in terms of the plans um, for, for the central bank. They were the ones discussing them. In fact, Nelson Aldrich had a trolley car accident before the 1910 meeting, which, which I, I found in some of the documents. Um, and as a result, he wasn't even the one to present the results of that meeting to Washington. It was Frank Vanderlip. Um, one of the main bankers at the time who was involved in, the, in being a presenter. Now, Frank Vanderlip also was friends with Woodrow Wilson. The two used to hang out um, and talk about matters of economics when Woodrow Wilson was the head of Princeton University. As the head of Princeton University, Woodrow Wilson was also provided monies by Junius Morgan, who was J.P. Morgan's father. So you see, again, there's all this entanglement of, of politicians um, on the Republican side, Taft, when this meeting was happening, and on the Democrat side, Woodrow Wilson, when it got passed, um, to establish this Federal Reserve as a mechanism to provide private banks with money when they needed it, when panics happened. Um, and that's been the role, aside from the fact that it you know, does dictate or, or set monetary policy, the level of interest rates, that the real role has been to be there as you know, sort of independent bank for the banks, for the major banks. With major quotations around that word independent. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. Total quotations. And to be there to provide liquidity. And, and what has happened is it's, all, it's also to the major players because they are the ones that created it. And again, under both parties, Paul Warburg, who I mentioned was at the meeting, he was assigned to be on the first Federal Reserve Board by Woodrow Wilson. So he was there at the meeting at the bequest of J.P. Morgan under Taft when Nelson Aldridge was organizing the meeting with the first articles of what the Federal Reserve would be. And then a few years later, he's appointed to this position and he's reappointed to a position on the Federal Reserve Board in Washington um, you know, as, as World War I was starting. And actually World War I, and that's a whole other separate story in, in the book, helped to solidify the beginnings of the central bank and, and how it really would preserve liquidity and, and help to the major banks because in the wake, of, you know, as World War One was happening, there was a lot of concern, a lot of volatility in the markets at the time, because you know the world was was going to be at war, and where the U.S. bankers would be in that hierarchy. And Jack Morgan, who was J.P. Morgan's son, and who at that point was running the bank, because J.P. Morgan actually died um, in, in 1913, but he was also in charge of pushing Woodrow Wilson to allow the banking industry to kind of be involved in whatever way they wanted to be involved, and Woodrow Wilson welcomed this in, in World War One, and also to ensure that the Federal Reserve would help them if they needed the help to do that. You mentioned World War One there, and you, it seems to come up a lot in your book. Whenever there's a major war, you see those same bankers popping up again. So I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit on the relationship between the wars and the banks and how the banks tend to fund essentially – both sides of, of many wars and, and how that relates to their relationship with the executive branch over the years. Right. So, so in World War I, um, the, the Morgan Bank was, in the United States, the premier bank. Chase was, was popping up. National City was popping up. And um, they were certainly involved in 
um, you know, distributing war bonds to raise money for the United States government to ultimately help their allies and so forth. The, the Morgan Bank was very much on the side of, of the allies. National Citibank had some, and Chase had more arrangements um, on the other side with, with, with Germany and so forth. There was sort of conflict going on at the time. But either way, at the end of the war, and this is actually one of my, my favorite parts of the book, I, I, um, a fellow named Tom Lamont, who was um, one of the partners, at the Morgan Bank actually went over with Woodrow Wilson to France to um, negotiate the Treaty of Versailles, which was going to dictate what kind of reparations would be spent, um, would be paid by, by Germany at the, you know, and sort of being involved in those negotiations with the French and the British at the time. So uh, those private bankers, you know, in, in no capacity other than being invited not in any sort of official national capacity, certainly not in elected capacity either, were involved in negotiating how this money would come out. But, but what that enabled them to do was find out where they could provide loans to reconstruct the parts of Europe that had been destroyed. Um, and as the banks that were involved in those parts of Europe had also potentially been destroyed, you know, the U.S. banks had this, this big opening to come in and, and to make money and to also uh, when Germany decided they weren't able to pay reparations to be there to help to negotiate better terms for Germany because on the other side of it they wanted to make sure that Germany continued to pay England and France so that they could continue to pay on their reconstruction loans to the U.S. banks. I mean that pattern kind of repeated itself in World War II only the Morgan Bank wasn't as prominent um, at that point it was more split between Chase and National City and the Morgan Bank. And then World War One, it was mostly, the show was mostly run by the Morgan Bank. Naomi, this is fascinating stuff. We're just going to touch on a couple more points here. But first, I need to take a second out to tell everyone about our sponsors over at Health Excellence Select. Believe me, guys, I know nobody likes dealing with health insurance companies. It's bad enough that you're sick, but now, thanks to the ACA, you're forced to pay for all sorts of coverage you don't even want or need, and the odds are you are indeed paying for it. I was frustrated, too, until I did some research and found out about health sharing, where like-minded, health-conscious individuals get together to cover each other's medical costs. And now the fine folks at Health Excellence Select have taken it to another level with a complete healthcare service, Combining health sharing with personal care assistance to help you find the doctors that you need at the best price, 24-7 phone access to physicians, along with discounts on dental and vision. And if that wasn't enough, they even have a website that works, if you can believe that. Guys, if you are struggling with a solution to your health care needs, look no further than Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Naomi, another thing I'd like to touch on with you is the Glass-Steagall Act. And this is uh, something I hear a lot of different perspectives on. Some people think we should never have had it in the first place. Other people seem to blame the entire financial crisis on the repeal of this act. So can you just describe to people that may have heard of this act and don't really know exactly what it is and how it's, in your view, its repeal has has affected the banking industry and um, the financial crisis that, that seemed to come along with it? Sure. So going back to the crash, um, large Wall Street crash of 1929 of the markets and the, and the subsequent Great Depression, um, the reason or one of the uh, influencers of that crash was that banks at the time were able to use um, their depositors' money to, to trade, to speculate, to create new trusts and new types of securities and then to get other investors to be involved in those and to pump up stocks and so forth. One of the things we're seeing now, by the way, as well, but in a manner that ultimately wasn't sustainable. And when the market crashed, 
these banks were obviously concerned and sort of left holding the bag, but they also had been shown to commit a bunch of tax evasion and fraud and stuff in the, in the, in the meantime. At that time, the heads of two of the major banks involved, of Chase and of National Citibank, um, a fellow at Chase named Al Wigan, a National Citibank named Charles Mitchell, were, were really like thrown out of their banks. And new bankers, I'm giving a little bit of a long story, but it's important to understand the, the politics of the Glass-Steagall Act for people that you know, are on one or the other side of it without knowing the sort of history. Um, those two people were thrown out of their institutions. They were replaced by Winthrop Aldrich and James Perkins. Winthrop Aldrich, Nelson Aldrich's son at Chase, James Perkins at National City Bank. They were friends of FDR. They were Republicans. I say that because, you know, this is just one of those times in history where there was a Democrat president, there was Republican bankers, and they got together, and the bankers wanted Glass-Steagall to get passed. And what Glass-Steagall was, was an act that would separate the practices of collecting deposits and making loans from the practices of creating securities, um, bonds, stocks, now more esoteric things, in the same institution. So it was the idea of, of segmenting the, the major risky stuff from the sort of pure uh, vanilla banking type of practices. And the reason that bankers themselves were so prominently supporting Glass-Steagall, as well as FDR, as well as the population. Uh, really, at the time, the population didn't really know what was going on to the extent of Glass-Steagall. It all came out in the news as it was happening, mostly in the you know, printed papers as it was happening. Um, they, they wanted these banks, because they wanted more confidence in their banking system. They had just undergone you know, a, a major source of loss. These new leaders were heads of these banks. The old leaders were uh, you know, basically shafted aside in disgrace, and they wanted a more stable system. That was what Glass-Steagall provided for decades, a more stable system where there were still financial firms that could take risk, but they couldn't take it with people's deposits. That's what Glass-Steagall did. Um, it, it, just, it just detangled people's money from more speculative actions within the same institution. Um, and so when it was repealed under Clinton in 1999, um, and it had been swiped at and sort of weakened in the decades before that, um, under slightly under Carter and then under Reagan and then under Bush, um, but it was repealed under Clinton. Um, at that point, banks could merge again, remerge their deposit side with their speculative side all under one roof. And as a result, they had more sort of of a green light again to go ahead and do risky things. Now, in addition to that, they had also just had the knowledge in the 80s that when they did risky things like lend too much money to Latin America and, and their bonds imploded, um, that the Congress decided to, to bail them out. So there was also, at the same time, more bailouts were happening from a federal government perspective and a Fed perspective of these private institutions at the same time this rule was repealed. So on both ends, they were basically given this you know, sort of padding, this, this federal padding to take risks and to be made whole on those risks if they went wrong. Um, and and the, the financial crisis of 2008 and where we are right now is just a, another manifestation, a larger manifestation of their ability to do that. And, and the, the government and Federal Reserve's um, policy to bail them out. So do you think we need something like Glass-Steagall in place? Or, I mean, is it really just a minor blip on, on the radar of, of trying to tackle what these banks are doing? Uh, I mean, you've spent so much time 
sort of um, exhaustively researching the relationship between banks and the federal government. So, I mean, did does any legislation really that that we've seen, whether it's Glass Steagall or whether it's the more recent stuff like uh, Sarbanes Oxley or, or any of the legislation that was passed after the 2008 crisis, does any of this stuff really help to rein in the problem of of the bankers controlling our government essentially, or are they really just just kind of little little tweaks here and there to maybe make the public feel better when it's without really addressing the actual causes here? Well, that's true. The structural changes that are needed are not addressed by those acts. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act, for example, that was passed in the wake of the Enron and WorldCom crises basically said that, you know, among other things, um, there have to be stronger records at these financial institutions. CEOs have to sign off on them and claim that they're actually true. Um, And, you know, again, multiple billions of dollars of fines and almost every practice later, that doesn't mean anything. Um, And then the Dodd-Frank Act that was passed in 2010 does some tweaks in terms of capital. It does some tweaks in terms of some aspects of trading of these institutions. But the net result is the big six institutions, for example, the United States, are bigger than they were before the crash. And they remain bigger than they were before the crash. So structurally, um, these types of acts don't really do anything. Why Glass-Steagall could be one of many types of remedies that could be administered to to simply not just reduce their size because there's a monopoly aspect to their size that should also be addressed um, in terms of it used to be that banks couldn't hold more than 10% of deposits in one institution, but because they can leverage those deposits so much, um, I think that number has to be readdressed. That's separate from Glass-Steagall. What a resurrection of Glass-Steagall would do, though, again, it, it would simply divide the, the call on people's money, which is kind of that, that moral hazard that exists today from being used as kind of ransom for when risks on the other side of banks' balance sheets, whether it be in in currency trading or or credit default swap trading or mortgage trading or whatever it might be, occur. So so the idea of, of, of separating banks is really to separate the risk to most people's, real people, individual people's involvement with these banks from the, the transactions and speculation and trading that they do because they have a tie on that on that capital. Um, if they didn't, they, the risks that they took would be much more their own. Um, and, and if a bank failed, um, you know, for example, like Lehman Brothers failed, it, it fails on its own. Although Lehman Brothers, this whole other story, failed also because it didn't have the same relationships as other investment banks had with Washington just on a personal basis. But that, but that that's another story. But the idea would be, to divide out risk from from our money. Would any of these banks even exist today if it weren't for the bailouts, if it weren't for the cozy relationship between the U.S. government and the banking industry? That's a really good question. I mean, it, certainly after the 2008 crisis, we would probably seen a, a couple others become much smaller and, and, and far less solvent and probably not in the same form. For example, Citigroup that was having many more problems as one of the mega banks going into the financial crisis. But yeah, these relationships go back over 100 years. And the relationships of even the government to these banks go back to those times, in, in, in the case of the Morgan Bank, um, in, in the case of going back to World War I, all of the banks. There was a lot of financial activities that were done between the private sector and the public sector that went through these institutions. So the relationships are so tight with the biggest banks that, yes, there's a possibility that when they would have run into trouble and not gotten bailed out, fewer of them would have existed. But what we've seen is the ones that do exist and have thrived have also happened to have been the ones that had the longest 
term personal and political financial connections to Washington relative to the other. So the ones that survive are the ones that survive. They like to think that maybe it's because they're smarter. They actually survive because of their connections. Naomi, as I mentioned a couple times, your book is an absolutely uh, exhaustive research into the details of the relationships between the banking system and the executive branch of the U.S. government. We have barely scratched the surface here, so I, I do highly recommend people go ahead and check out your book. We'll, of course, link to that book in the show notes for this show. Uh, one more thing I want to kind of get your thoughts on, though. You know, is there anything that can be done? I mean, you, you do an excellent job of thoroughly presenting the problems of the relationships between the bankers and the executive branch of the U.S. government. But in your view, what can be done to actually alter this seemingly never-ending, unbreakable bond between the big banks and the presidency? Um, what can actually be done? I mean, there's, there's um, making them actually smaller means that even if the bond is there, their tie and influence on capital and therefore its impact on us is weakened. So that takes care, you know, that would be under a Glass-Steagall resurrection or um, or actually invoking some of the monopoly laws, the antitrust laws that we have in the financial industry. So that's one thing. Um, you know, in terms of the relationship, obviously there's a lot of money in politics, but it goes beyond campaign contributions because they are actually a very small part of the, the financing that happens from Wall Street to the White House because there's so many other fundraisers and personal connections and, um, you know, PACs and super PACs and super, super PACs that allow the sort of collecting of, of money to be behind these, you know, candidates. And, and, and once they're in the presidency requires sort of a, a commitment in reverse, you know, sort of quid pro quo for the money that's given. So, so those things would have to be broken as well. So that even if the relationship is there, all of the monies that come from that relationships would have to be subdued. Because right now, even even the laws that aren't happening, like Citizens United and so forth, that only only looks at a very tiny portion of the money flow between Wall Street and Washington. And also the idea of cronyism from the standpoint of that revolving door. You know, there, there's so many lobbyists today that come from Wall Street and vice versa. I think in the financial industry, something like 68% are, are back and forth between Washington and Wall Street in, in the near term. And I think that has to be limited as well. I mean, it's fine for people to get jobs on both sides, um, but there have to be much more restrictions. If, if we want to dilute some of this power on, you know, the timing of those types of revolving situations. Well, Naomi, regardless of the solutions, uh, there's no doubt that the first step is uh, making more people aware that there's even something to try to solve, that there's even a problem here. And I, you do a, an excellent job of breaking that down, breaking down the entire history of this relationship between the banks and the presidency. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Before I let you go, why don't you just do a quick roundup of how people can find your current book and all your, your other books, as well as uh, contact you and, and see any of your other work. Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on Absolutely. and for listening. Um, yeah, you can go to my website, www.nomiprins.com for stuff about me, to contact me, my books, and also um, all the President's Bankers, It Takes a Pillage, and so forth are all available on uh, on Amazon, which I think is running actually something quite reasonable on the, on the paperback version of all the President's Bankers, um, as well as Barnes & Noble Indie Books, libraries, and so forth. Naomi Prince, thank you so much for coming on the show once again, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Naomi. All right, guys, and what a wealth of knowledge 
Miss Nomi Prinzes. And I told you during the interview, we only scratched the surface there. And I mean that. I mean, her book is an epic tome. And I mean that in a good way of information about the history of the relationship between the banking elites in our country and the executive branch. And this is a relationship that has been going on, well, probably really in reality since the founding of this country. And that relationship has certainly become more pronounced, or at least more out there in the public eye in recent years, thanks to people like Ron Paul, who are out there talking about the Federal Reserve. Thanks to people like G. Edward Griffin, who I interviewed on this very show. We will, of course, link to that in the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 112, this being episode number 112. See how easy that is? But uh, it's, it's a really interesting read. I do highly recommend the book. We'll, of course, link to that as well over at the show notes. It's a fascinating look at this, the relationship. I mean, I, I find it so interesting how these elites have manipulated the United States government or even vice versa. You could look at it either way, really. But it's, it's almost like the symbiotic relationship that has always existed, at least in modern times. And it's really hard to look at U.S. history without filtering it through the banks and how they have helped influence things. We talked about how they helped influence major wars, such as World War One and World War II. We might not have seen seen such epic destruction without bankers essentially funding and supporting all sides of these wars. And, you know, I find history interesting. That's why I do episodes about history. But at the end of the day, history can only tell us so much. It can tell us how things have been. It can tell us things that have occurred. But it doesn't really teach us philosophy or principles. And, of course, that's the reason this stuff is allowed to happen in the first place. Not that people believe in principle that government and bankers should be colluding together. I don't believe that. I'm sure there are some people that believe it, notably the people in government and the people in the banks that are benefiting from these relationships. But I think most people can't really envision how these things are manipulating the economy, how the economy and the world we live in is so incredibly manipulated and so incredibly different than it would be if we truly had a free system, a system free from coercion a system free of manipulation, a system where you don't have one organization, the Federal Reserve, that has a monopoly on our money supply. Now, look, I support the ending of the Fed. You know, it's that catchphrase, end the Fed, end the Fed. I certainly support the end of the Fed. It shouldn't exist because it's a coercive entity. It's, it's a monopoly that is forced upon us. However, simply ending the Fed, simply using that phrase, doesn't really portray the principles behind why there should be no Fed. And just by the same token, necessarily, looking at the history of the relationship between the bankers and the executive branch doesn't necessarily tell us why that was bad. <laughs> it really only shows us some of the effects and exposing those effects to people and exposing the reasons that those relationships have led to so much trouble for the everyday man and creating all these banking crises we've seen over the years. But what I hope to do by examining these issues... It's to sort of rein in the herd a little bit. God, I hate that phrase. It sounds like I'm, I'm a cult leader here. I'm not a cult leader. I'm talking about my herd of lions. Is that what you call lions? I think that it's called a pride. My pride of lions. You guys out there listening and other people that might stumble upon this show, people that are interested. You know, it's amazing how many requests I get to talk about the history of the bankers, to talk about the banking industry, to talk about the Fed. It's an interesting issue to a lot of people. A lot of people are intrigued by this stuff. And I am as well. I'm intrigued by sort of the, the mystery aspect of it. If you, if you read G. Edward Griffin's books, if you, if you read The Creature from Jekyll Island, a lot of this stuff does play out as a real life mystery, a real life conspiracy theory. 
Because it is, only it's not a conspiracy theory. It's simply conspiracy facts. <laughs> there is a fact that many powerful people in the banking industry collude with equally powerful people in the United States government. And it's hard to say which is actually more powerful, which side is actually leading the other, or if they're just so interconnected, it's like a never-ending circle of corruption and manipulation. Now, if we make people aware of this stuff, then we can say, now look, here's what we should have. Here's why we need freedom. Here's why we don't need these coercive entities in the first place. Because when you have these entities, like the Federal Reserve, like the U.S. government, like allowing the U.S. government to create the Federal Reserve, well, you're going to get negative results. You're going to get crony relationships. You're going to get the kind of relationships we've seen throughout the years as Miss Prince documents in her book, All the President's Bankers. Folks, <laughs> speaking of banks and money, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to beg you guys for money. I don't do that here on this show. I don't beg for money at all. But I am going to take a minute out now to do something I don't do nearly enough, nearly as much as I should, and that's to make a plea. A plea to my listeners. A plea to people out there that are enjoying this podcast. And I know if you're listening now, 30-something minutes into this show a good chance you're enjoying it, I hope, or unless you just hate yourself and therefore make yourself listen to stuff you hate. I don't know. If you got your own problems, I I don't know what to tell you. You might need some help then, but all I can do is tell you what I think. But if you do get value from this show, I'd like to ask you to help us out, and there's a few ways you can do that, and none of them involve you sending me money. (laughs) I mean, you can. I won't stop you from sending me money if you really want to. Email me, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com if you want to send me some cash. We'll talk about it. But no, what I want you to do, more than anything, because look, you know, one time I got accused, actually, and I posted a link to one of our articles on the forum, I got accused of of trying to, uh, you know, post an article to get people to click so I could continue to make so much profit off my website, and I just laugh and laugh and laugh. Guys, lionsofliberty.com is not a money-making venture. The Lions of Liberty podcast is not a money-making venture. We have put a good amount of our time and money into this project, not because we expect to get a financial return someday, but because it's important, because we think it's important to be advancing the ideas of liberty. We're not doing this for our own health. There's a lot surer ways to make a buck than to host a liberty podcast and have a libertarian website, believe you me. And there's no doubt that I have diverted time. I'm a freelancer, guys. If I put more time into my career, I can make more money. Well, the last couple of years, I've put less time into my career and more time into this because this is important stuff. It's extremely important. And if you think it's equally important, I ask you to support us. Now, how can you do that? There are many ways. You can simply tell your friends and family about our show, about lionsofliberty.com. Drop your friends an email. Give them a link to our iTunes. Ask them to subscribe to the podcast. Say, hey, I I really enjoy this libertarian show. You don't even need to say it's libertarian. Say, I really enjoy this show. I'd love if you check it out. You can head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this show or to our YouTube channel. Again, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash 112. Subscribe. Leave us a rating and review. All these things are free. These are ways you can help us out without spending a dime. You can also go to our Amazon banner, which you can find on these posts. You can find it on the right-hand side of our website. And if you do any shopping through Amazon, all you got to do is click through that link, bookmark it, and do all your shopping through there, and we'll get a small percentage of that. That'll help us grow this operation. Trust me, it's not going to help us make a profit. It's going to help us 
recoup some of our investment. Not only that, though, but do more. We're looking to do more. We're currently in the middle of redesigning our website. We're currently in the middle of looking at ways we can further market this podcast and further get this message out there to people, the message of liberty. That's why I'm doing this, guys. I'm not doing this to become a billionaire. And hey, if I, if I somehow become a billionaire out of this, great. Fantastic. That'll mean that the ideas of liberty are really taken off. But until then, I'm not a billionaire. So we don't have a marketing budget. <laughs> You're the marketing budget, guys. You're the street team. So if you enjoy this show, I just ask you to do those things. Share the show with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you can, if you so desire, do any shopping you can through our Amazon link at our website. Those three simple things can help us really make this thing big and really expand the movement and get the message out there. And that's what we do each and every week. That's what we keep doing on this show. Twice a week, every Monday and Thursday, here at LionsofLiberty.com. You can hear us, of course, on the weekends at Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern at LibertyTalk.fm throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network. If you got an Amazon Echo, just yell to that puppy, Alexa, play me the Lions of Liberty podcast, and she will whip that baby up to you. You can hear us right on your Amazon Echo, too. Cool stuff, right? Now, this coming Thursday, folks, we'll be back once again with another edition of Rand Paul Lusses and Minuses. Rand Paul Lusses and Minuses, our Rand Paul podcast review, where we look at the comings and goings, the statements and the sayings, the machinations and manipulations of one Mr. Senator Rand Paul, a figure that, for better or worse, is the politician most associated with libertarianism and the liberty movement. So we continue to examine what he's been going on with that guy lately. We'll be doing that this coming Thursday. And until then, folks, live long and live free. (laughs) 